Mark chapter 8. Halfway through the gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 8. We'll start in verse 1 and read down to verse 10. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's begin verse 1. <clears throat> in those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, they had nothing to eat. He called his disciples to him and he said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way and some of them have come from far away. His disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with the bread here, with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. He directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and the crowd sat down on the ground. He took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them, gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. They had a few small fish. Having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. They ate and were satisfied. They took up the broken pieces, left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. He sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Join me as we pray. Father in heaven, I pray in the name of Jesus, by the Spirit, that you would help us. We ask you, our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you would find us glorifying the Father through our relationship with Jesus the Son and doing so by the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray by the Holy Spirit that you will heal wounds, that you would strengthen. God, I pray that you would bring encouragement to those that are struggling. God, we ask you to bring a newness, a new hope, even this morning, Lord that you would speak to your people, that you would speak to those that are not yet your people. Draw them to yourself today. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. You may be seated. Never give in. Never, 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 never. No thing, great or small, large or pity, never give in give it except to convictions of honor and good sense. Never, never yield to force. Never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. Never. Now what I've just quoted to you was just a little piece of a speech that Winston Churchill Winston Churchill was a master of the English language. If you read his speeches, they're just as good as if you had heard those speeches. To make his speeches good, he used all kinds of rhetorical devices. But his favorite rhetorical device to use is something called an epizuxis. Epizuxis. An epizuxis is when you repeat something, whether it's a word or a phrase or an event, you repeat it over and over to make a point, to be emphatic. Now, this is not English class, so why have I introduced the word epizuxis? 
I've done so because I believe Mark chapter 8 is Mark giving us an epizoopsis. He is repeating something, something that has happened. It's happened again, and he's telling us the story to make a point. There are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. When you read the four Gospels, six times you'll see Jesus feeding a multitude, miraculously feeding a multitude. Two times in Matthew, two times in Mark, once in Luke, once in John. And here in the Gospel of Mark, the shortest Gospel that we have, in quick succession, chapter 6, Jesus feeds 5,000. Chapter 8, Jesus feeds 4,000. Why? Why has Mark given these stories to us? Why would Mark give up? I mean, there's so much to tell about Jesus. John ends his gospel and he says, if I were to tell you everything about Jesus, the whole world couldn't hold the books about Jesus. If that's the case, why would Mark tell us this event? It's a whole lot like the feeding of the 5,000. In fact, a lot of people, the liberal, theologically liberal scholars would say it's just the same event. But Jesus seems to contradict that in chapter 8 after this passage. He will talk about both events as something different. Don't you remember when I fed the 5,000? Don't you remember when I fed the 4,000? So why would Mark tell us? Why would Mark choose? I mean, this is what I've been going, thinking about all week. Why would he choose to include another miraculous story like this that he just talked about? And I immediately thought of Psalm 103. A lot of you know that psalm, Psalm 103, verses 1 and 2. The psalmist says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget not all of his benefits. We forget. That's why Mark's telling us this twice. We forget how good God is, how well he's provided, how much he's protected you. We forget. And so in an effort to help us remember, the Holy Spirit moved on Mark to write another story. It's here so that we don't forget. It's here so that you don't forget how good Jesus is. Chapter 7 ends, and the last verse in chapter 7 tells us that he does all things things well that he even that he even makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak what i hope today is to help you see that jesus is good and you can trust him jesus is good you can trust him let's go through the passage let's do what we've been doing just walk through if you're a guest you can just follow in the bible just i'm going to walk through from verse 1 to 10 point out a few things and then we'll come back and just maybe make some application with what we've seen in Mark chapter 8. Let's go there. Verse 1. <clears throat> in those days. What days? In the days when he was in the Decapolis. The Decapolis would be a Gentile territory. Those are people that are non-Jewish. They did not believe like the Jews did. And Jesus has been there teaching, doing miracles. And it's there in the Gentile territory where he's going to perform this miracle. In those days when, again, Mark, make sure we understand, this is not the same story that I've told you twice. This is a different event. The last event, there were 5,000 people with women and children. This one is 4,000 approximately. 
The last event, he had them sit in groups. This one, he'll just have them sit where they are. They're completely different events. Mark tells us this one happens in Gentile territory. The other one, the 5,000, was in Bethsaida. That's where the Jews live. This is a completely different event. In those days, when again, a great crowd had gathered, they had nothing to eat. You read verses 2 and 3, you find out they've been there three days. That his teaching is so good that people don't want to go anywhere for three days he's teaching. Now, I get about 35 minutes on a Sunday morning. Three days. Wouldn't you like to know what it is Jesus was teaching? Maybe this was the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe it was. Three days he's teaching Everything that was appropriate for them to hear about himself, it is so enthralling. The people, they are not, they wouldn't dare leave. It's so good. But at the end of three days, they aren't leaving because they are hungry. You get down there to verse 2, you find out Jesus is the one who's concerned about them. That's what the text says, verse 2. If, you have a, if, you, if it's your Bible and you don't mind, you ought to just circle that phrase, I have compassion. All through the Gospels, we are told that Jesus feels compassion. We are told oftentimes he sees the crowd and he looks on them with compassion because they are like sheep without a shepherd. A lot of times, it's a Gospel writer describing Jesus. This is the only time, the one and only time you ever hear him say it about himself. Jesus says in verse 2, I feel it. Because if you read verses 2 and 3 together, I know that if they walk out of here, they've been listening so good, they've been sitting here so long, if they try to go home, they're, they're not going to make it. Some of them have traveled a long way. What a picture of Jesus in verse 2, verse 2 and 3. Now, compare that to the picture of the disciples in verse 4. Verse 4, the disciples ask a question. It is a dumb question. You've heard it said there, are no dumb questions. Here's one right here. Verse, verse 4. And his disciples answered, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And don't you wonder, where have y'all been? I mean, this is what makes liberal theologians think, well, I mean, did they just forget? I mean, what is going on here that has led these disciples to think it can't be done? Uh, we'll come back to that. Going to verse 4, verse 5, he asked them, how many loaves do you have? He didn't go to the people, he went to the disciples. Jesus could have done this. He could have spoke it, it would have happened. And yet he asked them, how many loaves, verse 5, do you have? And they said, we have seven, complete, perfect number, just enough. We have seven. He directed the crowd to sit down, not in groups like he did back in chapter 6, but sit down where they are. He directed the crowd to sit down on the ground he took the seven loaves. Now, look, I've been studying this all week. The verbs in verse 6 sounded very familiar. I found one other person to say this. So, yeah, here's a rule of thumb. If you have an original thought when you're studying the Bible, it's probably wrong. If you can't find anybody else that's much smarter than you that's saying the same thing, I found one person to say this. The verbs are stacked up like they are when it's when Paul is describing the Lord's Supper. Let me show you what I mean. 
He directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. He took the seven loaves, gave thanks. He broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. Sounds just like that to me, to me. So we don't even have the fish here. Verse 6, you want to see the fish. He takes the bread, breaks it, blesses it, and starts passing it. We don't know where did the miracle happen in verse 6. We don't have a description of that. It just starts, just, the miracle just starts flowing in verse 6. And the fish are like an afterthought in verse 7. Some kids are like, oh, you know what? I got a couple of fish in my pocket. You want those too? So verse 7, they're like, okay, well, let's take those, bless the fish in verse 7, and pass the fish out too. And it's just enough because in verse 8, what a great verse, they ate and were satisfied. I would circle that too. One of the great provisions of Jesus, he ate, satisfied. What he gives you, satisfies. And then the commentary in verse 9, there are about 9,000, I'm sorry, verse 8, they ate, were satisfied, they took up broken pieces left over, had seven baskets full. See the seven baskets? Um, you'll remember when he fed the 5,000, there were 12 baskets, one for each apostle, one, a doggy bag for each apostle, he could have lunch the next day. That's back in chapter 6. Chapter 8, this is a different word for basket. This is the word that we might use to say a, a hamper. Uh, this is a basket big enough to carry a man. This is the same word that's described when Paul was escaping in Damascus and they lowered, down, lowered him down from the wall. They lowered him down in a basket, this size basket. There are seven giant baskets full of food left over. Verse 9, there were about 4,000 people and he sent them away. The crowd is dispersing. Verse 10, his commentary lets us know that now he's going to leave the Gentile region and head toward Jerusalem. That's verse 10. Verse 10, immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. We don't know where that is. It's never mentioned again in the Bible. It's probably um, where Mary Magdalene, it's probably Magdala. We don't know. All we know is it's, it's back in Jewish territory. And from that point on, Jesus starts toward Jerusalem and the cross. Okay. Running commentary. Now, what do we draw from this passage? Here's the first thing I want you to see. Number one, I want you to see that Jesus is on mission. Jesus is on mission. Right there in verse one, as, eight, as chapter eight begins, for reference, we are now less than one year from when Jesus will be crucified in the place of sinners. In this passage, at the end, Jesus will get in a boat. He will cross the Sea of Galilee. He will turn toward Jerusalem where he will be crucified. But for now, in verse 1 tells us that in those days, what days? The days when he was ministering to people that were outcasts, the Gentiles. Was not just staying with the Jews? The Gentiles. He was in the Decapolis, the Gentile region. He was there and and that little phrase tells us, reminds us, that Jesus is on mission to reach Gentiles. He's already done a great miracle of feeding people in Bethsaida, where the Jews live. Now he comes to where the Gentiles are, and he does the exact same kind of thing in the Gentile region. Why? To show that he reaches Jews and Gentiles and everybody in between. Why does he do this? It's important for us to see that in verse 1, 
there are two groups of people in verse 1. If you're not careful in a church, you can either have a church of just one group or the other. Here at Hickory Grove, we believe it is a privilege to get to worship and to be on mission has twofold mission. The first group is the crowd is mentioned. The second group is the disciples. One group is small and drawn in. The second group is large and reached, the crowd. What we find in verse 1 is a great crowd. Why do we do outreach thing? Great crowd. The great crowd there would see the miracle. They would see the power of Jesus. They would understand that his teaching has authority. They would see that he is Lord. They would, they would experience his sovereign hand. They would know, the great crowd would hear, he is able to save. This event is a reminder. People are in need and Jesus can meet the need of the crowd. That's one mission. That's one mission in here. But there's another mission right there in verse 1. The other mission is the disciples. The text says in verse 1 that after he looked at the great crowd, he called the disciples to himself. He brought them in close. Here's the close group of men who would spend time with Jesus, would follow Jesus, would hear his teaching even beyond what the crowd heard. They would see his life. They would have an intense time with the Lord. Now, our primary privilege as a church is to worship. Our primary mission has two things. We want disciples to grow, you as a disciple growing in a close relationship with Christ and other people, and that growth as a disciple then turns outward so that we might reach people for Christ. We used to say it in the old way, was to know Christ, that's discipleship, make him known, that's mission, multitude. So let me ask you this. It's two simple questions for everybody in here. <clears throat> the first one is the discipleship part. Are you growing in Christ? Are you growing as a woman of God? You, you gave, your, gave your life to Christ, were baptized, joined the church. Are you, are you de developing, flourishing as a, as a woman of God? Growing in faith and strength in the scriptures and fighting off sin and, and things that used to bother you don't bother you anymore. You can see how you used to be tempted by something, but now you've gotten strong as a believer. Are you, are you giving up? Are you sacrificing things that are holding you back? Are you growing as, as a disciple? That's one question. Another question would be, are you actually on mission? Do you see your life as a, as a mission? You're, you're growing as a disciple. That growth has now produced somebody that wants to reach people with the gospel. Why? Because Jesus is on mission. Let me show you something else you'll find in the text. As you get into it further, number two, and that is that Jesus is not only on mission, Jesus is compassionate, compassionate. One of the greatest things you'll find in the whole Bible, one of the most amazing things to ever come out of the mouth of Jesus is him in self-reflection saying, I have compassion. Splognizo is a Greek word or, or maybe you like the Latin word better. The Latin word compassion, C-O-M, come, it means with Compassion means suffer, and put the two together, suffer with. Jesus suffers with 
Jesus is often described throughout the, New, throughout the New Testament as having compassion, but here in the only time in the New Testament do we ever hear him actually say it about himself in self-reflection, I have compassion. I feel their suffering. Look, as a Christian, don't ever question whether or not Christ comes to you in your suffering. I was reading that, it made me think about, uh, about Exodus. I, I got this Bible in February of last year. I actually got in a church in Oklahoma, uh, preached a revival there, and this is the, the, this Bible is what they gave me. Now, it's a really nice Bible, and uh, so they've asked me to come back uh, this February, so I'm going to go back, and I know they're going to give me a Bible, so I've already uh, said, hey, look, this is the Bible I want. Figure, you might as well pick out one you want. And so uh, they, they had it for me. So the, it, In fact, the preacher's already sent me a picture of it. He's got it waiting on me. <clears throat> so I'll get it in February, but to do that, what happens is if you have a reading plan, you already started your reading plan, your other Bible. So I got this one in February, and uh, there's part in the Bible I haven't read in this Bible. So I've started going back through this Bible in Exodus. And it got to Exodus chapter 2, just a couple weeks ago. Reading in Exodus chapter 2 after God's people are in Egypt under slavery and the patriarchs are gone, Genesis is over, Exodus picks up and God's people are groaning under slavery. In Exodus chapter 2, verse 24 and 25, listen to what it says about God. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel. God knew. You take every one of those verbs and, and apply them to your heart. God hears and God remembers. God sees. God knows. When you read verses 2 and 3 over here in Mark chapter 8 and you hear Jesus looking at the crowd, verses 2 and 3 have this detailed description of their suffering. It is a temporal suffering. They're suffering from hunger. And, he, and the, the word compassion, he hurts with them. Dr. Quisenberry prayed for all that's going on in Israel. You've seen some of the images. I've seen some of the videos. I couldn't hardly look at them. Couldn't hardly look at some of them. The children being killed and, and, and young women abducted and abused and killed. And if you saw them, you, you know what it feels. It hurts. Jesus looked at the people and said, I, that's what I feel. And God gave the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. The law is delivered. And sometimes the Ten Commandments can feel cold and removed. You keep reading in Exodus, Exodus 21, by the time you get to 22, God is giving laws for his people. In Exodus 22, 26, and 27, it makes me, I'm reminded of the goodness of God. And God said to Moses, if you ever take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering. And it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? If he cries to me, I will hear it, for I'm compassionate. Now, if God feels that way about temporal things, how does he feel about the eternal? How does God feel when he looks at people who eternally are damned? 
are going to hell. If Jesus can look at that crowd and because they're hungry, he feels compassion. What does he feel for those that don't have him? It's why we do what we do, to be on mission, because he is compassionate. It's why we share the gospel. It's why when, when I talk about the gospel, this is what I mean, that God is good and holy and kind and loving. He created you in his image. But the image of God in us is disfigured by sin. Sin is not just that it has you far away from God. Sin means that you're dead to the things of God. That, that sin is an affront to God. He's a holy, just God. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death, that, that punishment comes from a crime. You understand justice. But, but God is also a compassionate God. The gospel reminds us he's compassionate. So he gives us Jesus, who's fully God. Had to also be fully man in order to live in our place. He lived earning righteousness, fulfilled the law, all the Ten Commandments I talked about. He kept them all. And he starts toward Jerusalem at the end of chapter 8. Why is he going to Jerusalem? Because there's a cross there, and it's on the cross. Wages of sin is death. It's on the cross where Jesus will take the punishment. Not for his sin, but for ours. And not just take our sin, he gives us his righteousness. When I say clothed, in his righteousness, I mean he earned it as a man. That becomes yours. And the way the gospel is appropriated is if you turn from your sin and believe. You see, our God is compassionate. Jesus, his son, compassionate. Come to Jesus because he's compassionate. Let me give you something else about Jesus. You'll find it in verses 3 and 4. He not only is compassionate, verses 3 and 4 tell us, that Jesus is patient, patient. This is an amazing display to me in verses 3 and 4, an amazing display of what actually feels very familiar. Let me read it and talk about it in just a moment. Verse 3 and 4. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come far, from far away. Now look at the disciples. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Now, think about everything they had seen. The demons that had been cast out, eyesight given back, deaf people getting their hearing, mute speaking. They've already, they've already seen him feed 5,000 people. Think about the miracles, all the provision. Surely, I mean, surely they hadn't forgotten what's happened here. I think verse 4 is one of the most accurate depictions of us. We forget. God brings us through something and he does so marvelously, and we celebrate at that point, and then down the road, four or five miles, something terrible happens, and we wonder. We worry, get anxious, and doubt. We doubt that he can do it. We're forgetful of the great provisions and the protections and the securities. We're skeptical that he'll do it again. We're dull, spiritually dull. Isn't it amazing? I mean, this is autobiographical. Isn't it amazing how faith leaks out? 
I mean, I mean, so many ways that God has provided, so many ways that Jesus has worked and provided and saved and protected, how Jesus has come through for you. And we develop some sort of weird spiritual amnesia. And what does Jesus do? He patiently teaches. In fact, I think that's why there are two miracle stories. I think that's why Mark gave it to us. I think that's why the Holy Spirit pressed Mark to give us two stories that were similar so we would not forget. Makes me want to quote Psalm 103 again. Psalm 103, verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. Bless the Lord, O my soul. All that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget not all of his benefits. And he lists five. What does the Lord do? He forgives your iniquity. He heals your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with steadfast love. He crowns you with mercy. He's been so patient. He's on, he's on mission. He's compassionate. And he's patient. Let me give you a fourth and then maybe a fifth. Number four. Jesus provides what does Jesus do? He provides. Let me show it to you, verses 5, 6, and 7. There's the miracle story, verse 5. How does he provide? Well, number one, he provides with your resources. Look at the text, verse 5. He asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven, just enough. Now, Jesus could have done what God did in the Old Testament when God just poured manna down on the people of Israel and fed them out of nothing. He could have done that. Instead, he brings the disciples into his mission. I mean, this is how the gospel goes. Somebody shared the gospel with me, I share it with someone else. It, it goes from person to person. When God does things, when Christ moves in a community, he moves through people. He says to the disciples, what do you have? God uses your resources. That's why we talk about giving to Hickory Grove. Giving to the mission at Hickory Grove. If you hear that, that, that's why. Be careful how we talk about tithing. Tithing is a good place to start, but you give to the gospel mission. And the truth of the matter is, if you come to Hickory Grove for some time, you've heard and you see what's going on here, and if you can't believe in the mission, the gospel mission at Hickory Grove, for your own soul, if you can't give here, you need to be some other church where you can. You can believe in the mission. What does Jesus say to the disciples? What do you have? Seven fish. Look at the miracle in verse 6. <clears throat> the miracle is just, it just pops up in verse 6. He directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. He took the seven loaves, perfect amount, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. Where's the miracle? There's no description of the miracle. All we can see is it just starts to happen. There's perfect provision in verse 6 with the seven loaves. But you know what I got hung up on is the foreshadowing. It's the foreshadowing. In verse 6, he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. Look, here comes the foreshadowing. He took the seven loaves. He gave thanks. He broke them gave them to his disciples to eat. How does Paul describe the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 11? On the night he was betrayed, he took the, 
He took the bread, he broke it. After giving thanks, he gave it. I don't think Mark intended that, but I'm seeing it. Here's a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ giving himself for you and I. Look, every time God provides for you, every time God provides for you physically, it's almost noon. Most of us will have something to eat after church. Every time God provides for you physically, it ought to remind you of his eternal provision for your soul, which is Jesus. What do we know about Jesus so far? I'll give you a fifth one, it'll be done. So we know Jesus is on mission. Jesus is compassionate. Jesus is patient. Jesus provides. Here's the fifth one. Jesus satisfies. Jesus satisfies. It's just a little phrase in verse 8. There it is, verse 8. I love the way Mark writes. He's brief to the point. Right there in verse 8, he tells us they ate and they were satisfied. Look, if you can be content in Christ, if you can be content in Christ, you have so much more strength to fight off temptation. If you are content, you aren't tempted. The reason we are tempted is we are not content in our state in life. The text says they ate and are satisfied. God's provision for us in Jesus is he has given us Christ. He satisfies our soul. What's the testimony of Paul? Paul is a great one to go to. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7, 8, 9, you have an autobiographical sketch of the apostle Paul. And this is what he says. And I'll close with it. Paul tells us, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power, it's made perfect in your weakness. So Paul then says, well, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ might rest on me. Satisfied in Jesus. You see, what I've been trying to tell you, what I've been trying to tell you is that Jesus is good and you can trust him. With your heads bowed this morning, let's go to the Lord in a moment of commitment and prayer. I want you to trust Jesus, to come to Jesus. You've tried everything else to satisfy. You've not been satisfied. There is contentment in Christ. He is patient with us. He looks at you today and he is compassionate with all that you've been through. He will cleanse you and heal you and forgive your sins, give you his righteousness. Come to Jesus. We're going to sing another song, and as we do, if you'd like to come and pray, if you'd like for a pastor to pray with you, 
You want to have a conversation of what it looks like to be with Jesus? You want to come and pray for someone that needs Christ? When we sing this last song, it's a great time to come forward and pray. Father, thank you for the word. Thank you for your grace in Jesus. Thank you for this church. I pray you find us faithful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand please as we sing together?